One of life's greatest questions is what happens to us after we die. Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to first-hand accounts of people who have been clinically dead and return to talk about it. I would like to welcome to the show today, Wendy Williams. And Wendy has so much experience. She has a couple of near-death experiences of her own. She works with all kinds of people with healing, has a book out, a podcast, all kinds of things. So anyway, Wendy, welcome, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you don't mind, would you just give our listeners a little bit of information about you? Just tell us a little bit about your your history and who you are? Certainly. Well, I'm a past life energy healer. And what I do is I help clients release chronic pain, both physical and emotional, as well as anxiety and depression are some of the big things that can present for people. And I've developed a process that's grounded in hypnotherapy, had the privilege of training with Dr. Brian Weiss, uh, who wrote Many Lives, Many Masters, as well as with one of Dolores Cannon's uh, first degree students and one of Dr. Michael Newton's students. And just use that and combine it with my Reiki master energy healing skills. And I'm also a certified spiritual teacher. So just here to try and help people uh, feel better and live that purpose. That's great. That's an awfully lot. If you wouldn't mind now, let's go back a few years and tell us a little bit about what led up to your NDE. Um, you know, a, a little bit about your health without going into, you know, HIPAA problems or anything, but tell us what was going on and, and led up to it. Sure. So it was August of 1997. I was 36 years old and we were expecting our second child. We were really over the moon because we'd had years of infertility and I'd had two ectopic pregnancies. So to be expecting um, again was just really wonderful. We had an 18 month old toddler and I'd had just one visit to the OBGYN physician because it was only 10 weeks along uh, when the NDEs occurred. And everything looked great at the doctor visit, but two things didn't seem right to me. And one of which was, Eric, I was having, I didn't know the term. I didn't know what precognitive dreams were at the time, but I kept having this vivid dream almost every night. And what I would see in the dream, it was this big storm out at sea, and I would see a ship. And there was all this ripping and tearing going on and masts get ripped off and the ship would always break into and go down. Now, this doesn't take a sophisticated dream interpretation, but I didn't understand that was, that was my psyche, my soul, whatever you want to consider it, trying to tell me, pay attention, Wendy, because your ship's about to go down. And what happened was I was working at home alone and my husband's at work. He's got one car. Our nanny's at the park with our um, toddler and she's got the other car. And I just did not feel right um, that day. And I just couldn't get comfortable. I'm trying to focus. I go lay down on the bed. It's like, I just don't feel right. I kept going in the bathroom. And I finally, I ran in the bathroom because I had this sense of impending doom, which I've never had um, before or thankfully since. And I thought I was going to be sick, but it felt worse than that. 
So I run in the bathroom and I look down at my abdomen because I thought, oh my God, someone stuck a knife in me because I had this searing pain and I had this feeling like an organ burst was the only way I could describe it. So I passed out on the floor um, at that point in the bathroom and I only came to because there was this insistent male voice that kept saying, Wendy, Wendy, you've got to wake up. You've got to call for help now or you're going home. That is so terrifying. It really was, particularly to be home alone and realize you've got no car. (laughs) It just was like, oh my goodness. So earlier on when you were having this dream, did you tell your husband or anybody about it? And what did they think about it? I had tried to share it with my husband. And like I said, we just didn't know what to make of it and just didn't, didn't understand that it was, it was a foreshadowing of events about to come. And I mean, I was in, I was in good health. I'd gone to the doctor. It it just, you know, there weren't any other signs to say, gosh, you really need to be paying more attention to your health. Sure. Okay. So what happened next? What happened next was when I hear this insistent male voice, I open my eyes And I'm a little disoriented because I'm lying on my side on the bathroom floor. And I look up in the room. I've never seen so much light in my life. And there were these four or five large figures with so much light coming off them. And my jaw's like dropping open at this point because it's like my bathroom's filled with angels. And I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Angels are real. They're here to help me. I, it just was amazing. I, I didn't quite know how to, you know, what to make of it because it took it out of the theoretical. I was a casual Christian at the time. I hoped that angels were real, but they were really more something, you know, beautiful on a Christmas card or in art or something written about in the Bible thousands of years ago. Well, now they were real. (laughs) It just was, it took it straight into absolute reality. So he repeated, you've got to call for help now. And I said, I understand, but I I can't, I can't walk. I'm I'm not sure I can get up because I was just so doubled over, just clutching my abdomen. And his answer was very telling, Eric. What he said was, you just have to be willing to try. And what I think that was about um, in hindsight was free will, uh, because we've got to be willing and wanting to help ourselves. We can't just delegate and shouldn't delegate our life or our power away to someone else. So uh, I, I got up on my hands and knees, which took some effort. And at that point, because um, I couldn't, I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk. And at that point, it felt like I was gently lifted or flown the short distance to get to the landline phone because this was 1997 we didn't all have cell phones you know glued to our hand and glued in our back pocket at that time so I'm there um, on the floor trying to reach up and, and grab the phone off the nightstand and I did think for a second who do I call and I had never called 911, so that didn't really go through my mind. And it's like, well, I'm going to call my husband because he works five minutes from home. Let's see if I can get him on the phone right away. Miracles continued. I've never reached him at work right away like that before or since. 
And I give him great credit because all I said was, I need you to come home. You've got to drive me to the hospital right now. Can you do that? And all he said was on my way. And he, I could hear him like slam the phone down. So I just had enough time to call the doctor's office, tell them what was happening. I told them I was in excruciating pain. They asked me if I was bleeding. I said, no, there's, there's no sign of blood. I don't feel like it's a miscarriage. I don't know. I've never had a miscarriage. And I can see my abdomen is distending really oddly. I can see it's just getting bigger and bigger. I don't know what's going on. So they told me, okay, that's great. You're going to, you know, your husband's bringing you right away. When you get here, uh, call, uh, we're going to be waiting for you curbside. Don't even park the car. Um, just we'll be waiting there with a wheelchair for you. Fortunately, the OBGYN physician office was right at the hospital. So that was perfect. And I think that was really important for me too. So I get whisked up to their office, straight into an ultrasound room. They helped me get up on the bed and things got odd again at that point because I'm not seeing anything on the screen. And I asked the ultrasonographer, is, is that on? Is that working? I don't see anything. <laughs> I don't get it. Because the whole point is to be able to see organs and see what's going on. And I could see her just take a, a, a pause. I could see her put her game face on and she said, I'll be right back. I'm going to bring the doctor. So I'm oh, looking man. at that's, like, that's almost more scary. Exactly. <sighs> when they're not going to tell you that's, that's not a good sign. Okay. No, that's not a good sign. So she's back uh, almost immediately with a physician in tow, as well as a certified nurse midwife. So we've now got five of us like crammed into this tiny little ultrasound room and the doctor tries to adjust the machine um, But he looks at me, asks me a question or two, um, touches, his, touches his hand to my abdomen and says, oh, I, I, I know what's going on here. You've got massive internal bleeding going on. We don't know where it's from. That's why your abdomen's distending. What you're seeing on the ultrasound, it's working perfectly. That's all blood. That's all blood loss. That's what all that black is. So uh, they, um, someone ran and got a stretcher at that point. They didn't even want me in the wheelchair and they take me straight over to the hospital. Uh, do not pass go. And straight into um, the uh, GYN floor and transfer me um, from the stretcher into a bed uh, with strict instructions. You're not getting up even to go to the bathroom. You just need to lie flat. Let's figure out what's going on here. We've got to stop this bleeding. So the next thing that happens, I hear the nurse. Also, they put me right at the nurse's station, which I appreciated. But I know if you've got one of those rooms right by the nurse's station, they're concerned. And I can hear her calling for blood. And in Seattle, we've got a central blood bank, um, which is great, very efficient. You don't waste blood. Um, but she comes back in and says, um, oh, and she'd asked me my blood type. I feel it's really important that everyone know their blood type and put it in your phone because there's these free apps called in case of emergency and just put it in there as well as any uh, medication, you know, any other important allergies. And then if you're ever in a situation where you can't talk, you're in a car accident, whatever happens, you're going to have your phone and the medics can look right at your phone because that information will come right up for them. They don't have to know the passcode to your phone. So I had told her it's A negative. So the nurse comes back in and she lets us know 
I can't get blood for her. There's no blood available because evidently there'd been a major train collision in Seattle a few days before, which I didn't know about, and they had used up all the A-negative blood. So we're now assessing, well, what do we do? We can't, we can't start transfusion, transfusing. We don't want to rush into surgery because we don't know what we're operating on and we've got no blood. So we agreed, you know, watch and wait. And I'm just trying to visualize. I'm like, oh, please, God, could this be, I don't know, what's non-essential appendix, gallbladder? I'm like, right. I, don't, I don't quite know what to wish for here. I just want this bleeding to stop. You know, please save my baby. Let's just, let's just have this be okay. So that's really all I can visualize and think of. They were able to start transfusing me probably um, six or seven hours later. So that night um, they started hanging um, bags of blood, but I can see we're going through it at a, at a pretty alarming rate. Mm -hmm. we're, we're hanging more and more blood. Again, I'm being very well taken care of. They're checking all my vitals. They're checking my hematocrit level. Um, and we had agreed uh, watch and wait because we're hoping this is going to abate on its own, but it's not. And I've blown through every pain reliever. I'm on morphine at this point. And Eric, I can, one of the things that concerned me the most was I really felt like I was walking between worlds. It was very hard to stay conscious. It was very hard to focus, answer questions, even when there was, uh, you know, medical personnel right in my face asking me questions. I was just so um, out of it and just having trouble um, staying conscious and having trouble focusing. And I was concerned too, that I didn't really care. Never felt like that in my life. That does not match my personality at all. So um, day three, the, my, and it's my own physician I'm being attended by, which I really felt so grateful for. He delivered my baby. I'd had surgery with him twice for the two ectopics. I'd gone through the infertility treatment so this was someone I really knew well. I also was fortunate. My community hospital delivered about 5,000 babies a year. That means they also see a lot of complications. So we agreed. I, I didn't want to be uh, taken downtown. Uh, I didn't want to be transferred. So when my physician tells me, I'm so sorry, but you're officially bleeding out. Uh, you know, we can't transfuse as quickly enough. You lose it faster than we can we can transfuse. I said, I understand. I understand. So um, we agreed at that point I needed surgery. I was going to have surgery the very next morning with two uh, OBGYN physicians, my own and one of his partners. So I sign all the paperwork for that. I get my uh, dinner at you know 4.30. It's the hospital. And I'm trying to relax. I'm by myself, just trying to visualize a positive outcome for the surgery the next day. The moment I visualize a positive outcome, I pop right out of my body. That is honestly the best outcome I can think of. And I'm out of my body. I kind of look back over my shoulder and I'm like, wow, she is a hot mess. She's whiter than the sheets and she's really in a bad way. And then I'm like, why am I referring to myself in the third person? That's interesting. But I knew I felt great, felt so great to be out of that body. 
and not in pain anymore. I wasn't worried anymore. I wasn't scared. I just felt more and more like myself because I was back in pure soul form. And all I can see is this white light coming down through the hospital ceiling. So I'm like, oh, I'm going up there. So again, I look over my shoulder and I'm like, eh, she's fine. Couldn't have been more casual about it. Happy to leave the body. You know, I've I've heard this from other people and I don't quite know how we can express that to someone that hasn't been through it, like me. I sort of get it, but having not ever felt that, I don't, I know I can't truly understand it. Can you explain more what that feels like? I know it's not that you just don't care, but you feel so good and what else? What I realized was the body in the bed, I knew Wendy Rose Williams was me, but I knew that that was just an aspect of myself. I I realized in that moment, well, my soul was just there in this temporary housing. That's not really me. I'm not defined by my body. I'm much more than that. I'm a soul. I'm much, much bigger, more energy, more powerful, and don't ever have to feel pain like that, like you do in a body. So those were the connections. Those were the realizations that were starting to come back to me. Right. And then it's got to be hard to think about, or, or at some point, which I, I, I don't mean to jump too far ahead in the story, but at some point where you know you're coming back, that's got to be a little bit traumatic too in a whole different way. Yes, I'll tell you about that. So I was just so drawn to that white light and nothing was going to get between me and going up and exploring that. So in soul form, I just go up and up and I'm like, I'm like a white beach ball, but I'm like very deflated. So even as a soul, I was not, you know, I'm still tethered to that body that's been bleeding out for days. And but I go up to, I go up to the ceiling. It's easy as can be. I pop out of the hospital and it's now I'm like looking around. I'm getting further and further from it. It's starting to look like a Google earth view, uh, you know, where you're further and further away. And I feel like I'm traveling faster. And then I stopped for a second. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I hope they don't make me walk through that long tunnel. So I didn't know very much about NDEs at the time. This was 1997, and they were not nearly as well, um, um, you know, part of part of um, popular culture like they are now. But I had evidently seen some movie or heard something about souls go home to the light through a tunnel, and I just expressed the thought: Please don't make me do that. I'm too tired. I'm not sure I'll make it. It's it's just too hard. The minute I thought that, this pristine escalator comes in for me. All the light, the white light coming off it. There's no one else on the escalator. I know it's my ride. (laughs) So I put myself on the escalator with a lot of relief. And I'm I'm like kind of hanging over the handrail on the right. And that's when I first really noticed that my beach ball body uh, as a soul was just like so uh, deflated. So I catch this great ride up and up and up. And at the top of the escalator, I'm met immediately by this group. There's about 20 beings of light. 
And it is the most joyous reunion I can imagine or describe or have experienced. About 15 of them, uh, I realized, were my soul family. And I could also see those same angels that had been in my bathroom were in the background. Soul family looked like me. They looked like beach balls, but they looked healthy. They looked big and round and bouncy. And it was like there was a little lightning storm in, inside of all of them with like all this energy. Everyone looked the same, except the angels were bigger. Now, did they look like beach balls or more like people? And did you recognize them and know who they were? They look like these orbs, these big orbs of light. But I knew exactly who they were. And my four grandparents, both sets of grandparents were in the front. And they greeted me. And that was amazing. I knew my mom's parents, my maternal grandparents, really well. I'd spent a lot of time with them. We'd actually lived with them for a couple of years. But what more blew, so I'm so happy to see them. But what more blew my mind was my dad's parents were there. I never met my dad's parents. They died before I was born. But yet I knew exactly who they were. So it's this soul recognition that's hard to, hard to explain because everyone looks exactly the same other than the angels being much larger. So the same male angel, now that I'm up at home um, with the light, heaven, whatever the right term is for you, I recognize the voice. It's the same angel that spoke to me in my bathroom. And I recognize it's Archangel Michael. And he says, welcome home. You're so, we're so glad you're here. You made it. You've done nothing wrong. And you're welcome to stay. But if you want to go back and it's your choice, you're going to have to make that choice quickly. And I knew what he meant. That body in the bed was not viable without a soul in it for very long. So uh, he continued and said, there's three things I can tell you to help you make your decision. Number one, you will have a successful surgery tomorrow. You will fully regain your health. Number two, your baby will be born healthy. These are huge pieces of information. I was so grateful to know them. Number three was the kicker. The third thing he shared with me was, if you do choose to return, your life will be very difficult, likely for many years, because you're not on your life path. You're not living your purpose. You're not living your soul mission. So I'm like, oh, I like take a big breath in because I'm, I'm horrified. It's like, hello, I'm 36. You'd think I'd be figuring it out by now. I want to do the right thing. So that's what he told me. And you had to make the decision quickly, you mentioned. And exactly. let me just ask you a couple of clarifying things before you go Please. on. Michael, the archangel, how did you know that that's who it was? Did he introduce himself or was it like your grandparents where you just knew? It was immediate. He didn't have to introduce him, himself. I just heard the name. It just was this recognition. It was immediate. Okay. And the other thing, a couple minutes ago, you used the word home. That you were home. I thought that was a very significant term. Can you explain a little more what you meant by that? Yes. I think my personal belief is we're eternal souls and that we come from the light and put all the different religions aside, put all the belief systems aside. I believe that that's our 
one true home. That's our eternal home. And it's our choice if we're going to incarnate and come to earth or other planets or other dimensions, if our soul's going to choose that. I believe it's a free will choice. So home is the best word for me because it just takes all the all the different, you know, man-made religions of, you know, is this the universe? Is this, is this heaven? Is this, you know, what what, what is it? It's home. Right. And most of us use that term to describe a very comfortable, very, I don't know. And, and I know it's not that way for everybody. Some people had a rough home life, but most of us only think of the very best times, you know, in whatever house or whatever, wherever we were living, but home is a special word. And it really means a lot of something. It feels like where you belong and where exactly. you came from. And the reason I feel that is when I first got to the top of the escalator and everyone stopped me, they gave me this group hug. And that hug had so much unconditional love. And I don't think we feel that very often on earth. Uh, love, unfortunately, is often conditional. So to feel that and to feel no judgment and just this welcome. I, I just, I can't explain it. That's what home felt like, or it's just this true acceptance. And you're nothing but loved and you feel nothing but love. Uh, so it, it really, it, it just really expanded everything for me. And as Archangel Michael was giving me this respectful choice, which I felt very grateful for, because as I learned more about NDEs as the years went on, I hear a lot more people describe, well, I got told you have to go back, or they physically felt they were pushed or even shoved back into their body and told it's not your time. Whereas I didn't have that experience. I was given a choice. But the moment he asked me again, you know, what do you want to do? You, you know, the three things I, of course, I tried to get more information because when he said I wasn't on my path and I'm aghast by this information, I'm looking at him like, well, tell me, I, I want to know, I want to do the right thing. And he just shook his head. So I'm looking around at all the others. Cause I thought, Oh, come on. There's 20 of them here. Someone's got to give <laughs> some information, please. But uh, they just they just got really playful and they're like, you know, zipping their lips and they're like throwing the key away and putting duct tape over their mouths or where I imagined their mouth would be. Because again, they're not looking human, but you just kind of know what's going on. And so I realized I just need to settle down and be very grateful for what I've experienced so far. And these three things I've been told really are priceless to me. So when he asked me, what do you want to do? What do you choose? I immediately saw my toddler's face, my adorable little daughter. And it wasn't like the normal size. It was like the IMAX theater, like the 70 foot. It's like, it just filled my world. And I immediately told Archangel Michael, put, put me back in. I'm going back. I'm going back for my children. Easy choice, easy choice. And everyone um, then hugs me again. And they're like, yes, you know, we'll be rooting for you. We'll be, we'll be just, you know, cheering you on. And I realized that second hug 
was not just unconditional love and support. It was some sort of energy download because as I said, I was flatter than a pancake. I'd been bleeding out for days. So everyone's giving me this infusion of love and energy. And I then just, you know, get turned around, go back down the escalator. I look over my shoulder and I kind of wave and everyone's like waving to me and I have no regrets. Just go down the escalator and then I see the hospital and then I see my room and I see my body and I just pop back into my body and it's easy as can be. And I do have the successful surgery the next day. What they discovered was uh, the fundus, which is the aorta at the top of the uterus had ruptured. So an aorta had been pumping blood out and they uh, estimated I'd lost three quarters of my blood supply based on the amount of transfusions that it took. Um, so had a successful surgery on my uterus while pregnant, uh, you know, not ideal. I've had morphine, I've had transfusions, um, but very, very grateful. And they evidently were, uh, they did the surgery doing, using some sort of imaging because the physician was able to reassure me. And of course, a 10 week fetus is, you know, tinier than a peanut. And he said the fetus was so low in the uterus and we just made sure to stay where we needed to be really high up because it was the top of the uterus that had ruptured. So he's like, we made sure to stay away from the baby. So I'm in the hospital recovering just a few more days. I go home um, for six weeks of bed rest, essentially, because I am just beyond exhausted, just really, really, uh, really need to recover. Very fortunate we had our, our live-in nanny who's now taking care of me as well as of our toddler. And then I go back to uh, work uh, six weeks later and more, more of the prophecies started to come true at that point. So before we talked about how you changed your life, like you were told you needed to, um, tell us about this baby that was born, this one that was so in jeopardy. Yes. So she was born on uh, March 13th, one of 13 babies um, at our local community hospital, which I just thought was a hoot. Uh, 13 of them born on the 13th. It forever became her lucky number in sports. Um, and she was, she was born healthy. She is now uh, 24. Um, she just earned her engineering degree. The uh, NDE was very uplifting, very important, uh, very crucial for me. But I don't think my daughter had the same experience. And what Michael said was true. She was born healthy, but what he did not say was there would be a lot of health challenges along the way. Um, so she was born with, you know, great, great APGAR score, um, but many things did, did come up along the way, which she's had, she's had to battle. Um, there's been, there's been um, primarily um, some pretty serious, uh, both mental health as well as physical issues that have come up and she's had to, she's had to work hard. She's got to be grateful for the decision that you made though. Yes. She also um, feels some, she, I would say she was born scared is the term for it, you know, cause think about having gone through that as, as, you know, in utero. Sure. Because, um, you know, souls have a memory and they just, you know, and to have something like that happen. And uh, Julia Ingram wrote an amazing book called Born Scared, 
where she talks about anxiety and depression that predate this lifetime and seems to come from either previous lives or from in utero experiences. So I feel that that's um, what happened um, for my daughter. Yeah, born with PTSD, I guess. You just hit the nail on the head. It's never been formally diagnosed, but that's absolutely what I see. Okay, so you were told that things weren't going to be easy if you came back and you had to make some big changes. Tell us about those. So what happened? I'm back at work for about uh, six weeks. Uh, job I love. I've been there uh, three years or so. Everyone's so you know thrilled to have me back. I just can't verbalize what happened because, you know, people pass you in the hall and say, what happened? And it's like, it took me 20 years to process this. It was 20 years before I really spoke about it because uh, it took that long to unpack it. Unfortunately, I did not know about IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, and the irony of that. Here I am living in Seattle, the oldest chapter in the country, most well-established, fabulous chapter. I wish I'd found it, but that was not my path. So I've been back at work about six weeks, still working to regain my health um, because the, it, it was a high risk pregnancy, um, you know, with everything that had happened. They were concerned that, that the uterus could uh, let go again. They were afraid, you know, because it's just growing. There's so much pressure on it. They were afraid that it could rupture again. So I'm on, you know, I'm just on, on, I'm on cloud nine of, I, I made it through, but I'm also just walking on eggshells for the entire pregnancy. And what happened uh, six weeks into being back at work, get called into my boss's office. It's Friday afternoon. Got a great relationship with my boss. I don't think a thing about it. I think he wants to chat about the weekend or give me an assignment for the next week. But the minute, Eric, I walk into his office, I'm like, oh boy, look at his face and his energy. And I saw human resources sitting there at his uh, conference table with my file, my personnel file in front of her. Well, we know what this is. This is the infamous Friday afternoon layoff. Uh, couldn't have been a worse time because uh, I, I, I loved the job. It was very important to our family um, finances. And I also held the health insurance for the entire family. So I'm laid off. We now have no health insurance for any of us. I'm pregnant and not feeling well and not in a great headspace to be out interviewing for jobs. So I thought, hmm, interesting, because the angel said, Archangel Michael said, things are likely to get very difficult. And, but I just didn't know what to be doing uh, because I didn't get any information and I just didn't know how to figure out what I was supposed to be doing to be on my path that I wasn't doing. So one week later to the day, so I, you know, I go home, I lick my wounds, I file for unemployment, I've got great references. So, you know, all that's good, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, quite visibly pregnant at this point. And as I said, not, not in a great space to be looking for a job. Uh, one week later to the day, my husband comes home from work several hours late. He had not called. And I'm like, gosh, what is going on? Um, this is this is very odd. And I was I was concerned because it was about eight o'clock at night when he walked through the door looking like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. And I you know, met him at the door and said, oh, my gosh, are you OK? What's going on? And he said, sit down, Wendy, we need to talk. I have something really difficult to tell you. 
And what he told me was his software company, which he owned uh, with four other partners, they employed about 100 people and had been doing quite well. And he told me that they'd had to do massive layoffs, that they had gone um, under very quickly, and that he hadn't been sharing with me some of the signs of that that had been coming up uh, over the previous few months because he didn't want to worry me while I was going through all this uh, pregnancy uh, drama. So I, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> our ship is really going down at this point. Because <laughs> here we have both of us with no jobs, uh, no health insurance, and we were heavily mortgaged. We had just uh, not long before moved into a new larger home to accommodate the growing family. We had purchased um, a new minivan. We've got the full-time live-in nanny who's on contract and we've got no incomes. So um, I'm looking at him and I'm like, okay, Wendy, breathe, breathe. And I, I did manage to say, I'm so sorry, because it feels horrible to be laid off or you know to have a job loss. But when it's your company, that's your baby. So um, you know, it was really hard for him. And I'm I'm trying to reassure him, well, you know, just take a breath, file for unemployment on Monday. And then the next hit comes, which is, well, Wendy, I don't qualify for unemployment. I'm self-employed. There is no unemployment, which I didn't know because I've never been self-employed. So I'm like trying to calculate. <laughs> We're now down to my unemployment only. So um, we did everything we could um, to keep our, our, our ship afloat. You know, you, 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 you tighten your belt, you use your savings, you max your credit cards, you try and negotiate with, 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 with creditors. We did everything we could, um, but we were, we were in dire straits. And thankfully, um, my kind mother uh, stepped to the plate for us. Bank of Mom was our last, our last resort, and we asked her for a loan. So she gave us a loan um, every month, whatever amount uh, we were short, so that we could keep our home and keep our, our, keep our van because we were in jeopardy of losing both otherwise. So the baby's then born healthy. March 13th, the astrology must have changed. And we didn't realize at the time, this was November of 97. So the country was going into a pretty deep recession at that point. But we didn't have crystal balls. We didn't realize that's what was going on. So she is, she's born. And my husband was able by that point to get his company sold because he had been working payless paydays. He'd been working 80-hour weeks, just trying to do the programming himself, trying to keep you know, jobs that they'd sold, he didn't want to lose his reputation. They'd already sold jobs. He's like, we've got to deliver them. So he'd been, he'd been working um, and they did get the company sold. He literally started back um, to his new employer. Um, all, all of them did on the Monday after I delivered. <laughs> so everything came back together in March of 98. I then went back to work in June of 98. But Something else really important happened, Eric. Um, I was able to get some emergency health insurance. Again, thank you, Archangel Michael. I don't know how to explain this, but when you are graced with hearing from the other side, when you're graced with hearing your own intuition, your own higher self, a guide, an angel, listen, pay attention. Because how I got the health insurance was wild. I'm sitting in the pediatrician's office um, before um, the second baby's born and I'm holding my toddler, you know, you're trying to entertain them because they're going crazy and you're hoping they call your name soon. 
And I hear Michael say, clear as day, look, look. So I'm looking all around the room like, you know, is my kid safe or all the kids safe? What's going on? And I see over in the corner, this little side table with a lamp on it. And it's like this light came down over this brochure in front of it. So I put my toddler under my left arm and I run over and grab this brochure and shove it in the diaper bag to read it home. What it was, was Women, Infants and Children program, which I'd never heard of. It was a form of Medicaid um, specifically for people uh, like us, where you know you own a home, but you've got no cash flow going, <laughs> and you just need insurance as well, some health insurance as well as some healthy food. So it provided those two things to us, and that helped us get through. But here I am at home after this very uh, short delivery because it's only approved for a 24-hour delivery, including labor. So you're in, you're out. I'm home more grateful than I can express holding this uh, healthy baby in my arms. I haven't been home an hour. I'm by myself, I'm breastfeeding the baby. And I hear Archangel Michael say, your contract with your husband is complete. I almost dropped the baby. I said some very unladylike words to an archangel, like you've got to be kidding me, will be the PG version of that. <laughs> I clarified with him what he meant by a contract being complete, because yes, you can choose to stay with someone when your soul contract is complete, but uh, you won't be growing, you won't be living your path, you won't be living your destiny, is my belief. But I did not want to leave. Uh, hello, we've got a newborn and a two-year-old, and I, I wanted to hold to my marriage vows. But was it easy? Was the marriage going well? No. And once you've got knowledge like that, how, how you, you, can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, it was crystal clear what I was told, and I knew what it meant. So uh, we tried our best to be uh, respectful, uh, you know, great, great um, partners and parents, um, but we did divorce um, when our daughters were six and eight. Um, I chose the time because they were both in school full time. And I thought this is, this is the best way for us to be able to co-parent and the girls are gonna go back and forth between the two homes. Uh, again, we were very fortunate. Um, my mom chose to relocate from Boston to Seattle. Um, she was retired. I'm the only child, it's the only grandkids. And her, her um, ties to Boston had been kind of coming untethered. And people had been saying to her, why don't you move out, um, you know, where Wendy and her family are? Because she's not going to come back to Boston. You know, why don't you, why don't you consider moving out there to, to be with them and be with family? So that's what she did. She became team grandmom. If I needed help, she'd help me with the kids. If, if my ex-husband needed help, she'd help him. Because it was what the kids needed. So we went along um, like that for about six years. I rebuilt my life, had a great job going again. My mom and I built a duplex and we were living in the two sides of it, which worked really well. And um, my former husband was doing well. The kids were now, our daughters are now 12 and 14. And Eric, I'm looking around going, wow, life is going great. What's missing? Oh, I'm ready to meet a nice guy. I'm finally ready. It's like six, six, six years after, after the divorce, I'm finally ready to meet someone. And then I'm like, 
how do you do that? That's <laughs> like no clue. <laughs> I haven't been on a date in 25 years. I have no idea. So internet, internet dating had to come along. Exactly. Right? I go to younger girlfriends who were actively dating. And I said, how do you meet someone? I don't feel like I'm meeting someone like through church or, you know, through events. And I'm super busy. I'm like, how, how do you do this? I don't, I haven't, you know, been meeting friends of friends or I just don't feel like I have opportunities to meet um, a, a nice guy. And they said, oh, Wendy, you just need to get on match.com. And my reply was match.what? <laughs> because I didn't know what internet dating was. So girlfriends helped me put together a profile, put some pictures in there. And I, at first I had my, my radius, because you put in a radius of you know, how far you're willing to, to, to uh, meet someone. And I had put in five miles because that was like the tightest you could you could put it in. And there were there were a lot of people, so um, you know I was able to put it that tight. But then it's you know a couple months later, and I'm like, mm, you know, I haven't I've been out on a couple of dates, I haven't really met the right guy. The minute I changed my radius to ten miles, this profile immediately came up. I'm like, I know him, I know him, I know him. I could just feel it in my heart. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, we must have met somewhere and I'm just not remembering, um, you know, like, like a professional association or like a friend of a friend that you like, you saw each other at a party, but you didn't quite meet. I'm thinking it's something like that. And I, the last sentence he wrote in his profile, I don't think it's ever been on match before or, or since he wrote any woman on a spiritual journey, particularly if you're interested in an LBL, we have to meet. And I'm like, LBL, what in the world is an LBL? So I'm Googling to make sure it's not some weird drug reference <laughs> because I know I'm like kind of, kind of sheltered <laughs> at this point. And I find Life Between Lives, Dr. Michael Newton, Journey of Souls. It's a four hour deep spiritual regression. It's what follows a past life regression if you chose to really get into it and explore your soul memories. So I write to him and I tell him, honestly, I wouldn't describe myself as on a spiritual journey, but are you talking about Newton and journey of souls? Because that looks fascinating. And I just ordered it from the library. I'm waiting for it to get here. And I'm like, am I connecting the dots right? And he writes back to me right away and says, yes, you know, you've got to, you've got to read that book. You've got to start looking into it. He was getting ready to go for his second LBL, Life Between Lives at that time. So it took us about three weeks to get, uh, you know, busy schedules and business travel and all that to get schedules synced to meet. We agreed to meet for lunch at a restaurant near my work, which was near his home. So we're meeting on a weekday. And I'm just, I get there first. I'm just sitting on the bench in the foyer. In the minute he walks in, it was like, I was like, whoa, that, that's like an earthquake. I'm like, and I'm on the West Coast. I know what an earthquake feels like. It's like a rolling underneath your feet. You literally feel the earth moving. I'm like, whoa, earthquake. And I, I can't stand up because I'm watching him walk in. And he's looking at me the same way. And when he came over, I couldn't stand up. And he got down on one knee in front of me and he's got his face. He's just looking at my eyes and he says, I know you. And I was like, I know we've got to figure it out. 
So he helped me stand up and it's like, okay, the spell's broken. It's not an earthquake. <laughs> so we walk in, we have lunch for three hours. I think we would have stayed there longer, but we did both have to get back to work. And what we realized, it was our past lives. So there were so many past lives that were starting to queue up and come in. And we also had important soul contracts together to sort out. And that's what got me on my spiritual path. Because he then found the past life regressionist, the Michael Newton therapist that I would then go to for my first past life regression. Because I wasn't even into chapter one of Journey of Souls. And I'm like, oh, I've got to go have one of these. I don't even know what it is. And I know I'm supposed to go for it. So that's, that's what happened and got things going on the spiritual path. It was very surprising. Talk about out of left field. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so all the... Let's see what what was the wording you were told that, it, that things were going to be very difficult when you go back, and they were. That was very. They prophetic. were. They were honestly for for six or seven years. And then they and then they got amazingly good. And let me just let all of our listeners know this is not a paid endorsement for Match.com. <laughs> So exactly, <laughs> I don't darn think it, wish it was. Whatever. I think it's just, I think the point is, I think our guides are so loving and so wise that they need us wherever we're at. And they're going to come in and help you where you need it. And because I was at the point where I was ready to meet a nice guy, who do I meet? I meet the man with the soul contract to wake me up spiritually and get me on my path. Cause he'd been exploring all this for about 10 years. So he was so far ahead of me. So he helped me just shortcut and catch up to where I needed to be. Yeah. It's crazy how that stuff works. Well, um, we'll be sure to get the information in our show notes. If people want to find your books or to contact you, they can find everything. They can go there and do that. One last thing that I want to ask you about is, and I'm sure you've run into this before. When you talk to some, if you were to talk to somebody who said, Hey, I don't know much about near death experiences or all these other things. And, and I don't know what I believe. And they're looking to you for a little bit of enlightenment or guidance. What would be the one main message you would tell them? I would say, learn how to ground and clear your own energy so you can raise your vibration, so you can listen to your own intuition, your own higher self. Be in nature. Just anything you can do to just have, you know, a 15 minute, if you can't meditate because you just have monkey mind, walking meditation really is a thing. Just having a walk, clear your head, clear your energy, just getting out of that left brain and getting that ego balanced. So we don't have so many fear-based messages so that we just can settle in and know that we know what we know and start following your intuition, start following your heart and just be able to tune into that energy would be my my best um, advice. That's a great message. On a scale of one to 10, how much fear do you have of death? Zero, zero. Good answer. Yeah, there, there's no reason to. Um, our souls are eternal. Um, I, I, and I think people 
really more fear, you know, the pain and it being very, very um, uncomfortable. And modern medicine can certainly help with that. Um, you know, we can be kept kept comfortable, whether it's at home or in the hospital or whatever it is. And you just, you just need to let go. You just, you know, you have those loved ones there. And often people pass on when that, when that smart, loving family member says, it's okay to go. You know, we love you. You can go. It's okay to go. Or the nurse says it, or, or the hospice volunteer says, it's okay. You're loved. Go. You can just go. And, you know, people just, just are able to uh, rise up from that. But we, we hold ourselves back. Um, you know, people can just, you know, feel guilt or just feel, you know, what's going to happen to my loved ones or just get, you know, caught up in that or feel like they might not go to such a nice place. Um, and our thoughts create our reality. So just, and also know loved ones are coming in and helping you. Um, you know, there's angels, there's loved ones, and there's lots of documentation on that um, about, you know, these shared uh, shared death experiences. And when patients start talking in hospice or in hospital about, well, I was, you know, I've got to get on the bus or I need to take the train or you need to bring my suitcase from home so I can be ready to go. Um, or they'll start talking about um, loved ones that have passed on. They're, they're ready to pass on. Thank you so much. Wendy Rose Williams, really appreciate your insights, your wisdom, and your optimism on everything about this subject today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. If you've had a round-trip death experience and would like to share it with us, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to me, eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you've found this program uplifting, it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, rate us five stars, and be sure to visit roundtripdeath.com. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Music